Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at If you'll go through the Gospels, you'll see Matthew starts the triumph entry in chapter 21 out of 28. Mark starts in chapter 11 out of 14. Luke starts 19 out of 24. John starts 12 out of 21. He's actually the longest. So Jesus' last week of his life is very significant to the gospel writers, to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to portray the importance of Jesus' final week. And we see that up until this point, starting in Luke chapter 9, verses 51, we see this procession Jesus walking towards the cross. Jesus walking towards Jerusalem. And when I say procession, I I want you to think of a wedding. I want you to think of the procession before the bride comes in. I'm sure that every one of us have been to a wedding. I know a lot of people are married in here, so they've been a part of it themselves. But when a wedding starts, the groom usually comes in, right? Maybe with his groomsmen. Sometimes he walks in with the pastor. And that usually signifies that the service is about to start. And then as the groomsmen come in, then the bridesmaids come in, then the flower girl and the ring bearer, if they can make it down the aisle, they come in. Sometimes family members will be walking down the aisle, but eventually the music changes. Eventually the final doors open and the bride comes in. Everybody stands up, looks to the back so that they can see the bride And then nowadays, people look to the bride, then look to the groom to see if he's crying, right? They have to make sure that he's crying. And then they look back to the bride, maybe snap a picture of the bride, put it up on Instagram, say a nice little thing from the service. And that's how weddings usually go nowadays, right? But it's this procession, this walking down the aisle, the bride coming to her groom. And so up until this point, up until... Uh, from Luke chapter 9 to 51 up until this point, we have this procession. Luke 9 actually tells us that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, that everything that he did in his ministry was walking towards the cross, walking towards his funeral. And so we have this slow procession between now and then, or then and now. And this time, as Jesus walks into the final week, it's as if the doors have opened. It's as if the music has shifted and everyone is standing up and now the groom is walking down that aisle. The last part of the procession of Jesus' life is walking towards that cross to secure his bride. Now, can I just say something? I guess I really can because I have the mic. So, I mean, you can't stop me. Um, But from what I see in scripture and and some of you may interject, and that's okay. What I see from Scripture is that weddings are about the groom. Am I right? Like, Jesus is the groom walking towards his bride. But nowadays, it's more about the bride. It's more about this is her day. She's wanted this as she was a little child. And I think some of you in here are probably thinking, and this is why he's single. These, <laughs> these thoughts right here are why he's still single because I'm not going to win that argument. Am I right, ladies? I'm not going to win that argument. I just wanted to say that just because this is what I see in Scripture. But this is what we have. This procession is coming to an end. Jesus is walking down the aisle 
to his death, but to secure his bride for eternity. And that's what we're going to take a look at this morning. So if you guys, let's, let's go ahead and go to, the word, or go to the Lord in prayer before we get into the word and just ask him to bless this time. Lord, thank you for, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that points us to Christ, that points us to our Savior and points us to our need of a Savior and then shows us that that Savior has come for us, dying for us, securing eternity in heaven with you, pointing to your glory, pointing to your grace. And Lord, as we open up your word this morning, as we look at the final week of Jesus's life, Lord, may it, may it stir up our affections for you. May it challenge us. May it humble us. But Lord, ultimately, may it bring glory to your name. Thank you for your promise to make us into the image of Christ. And Lord, we pray that in this time you would do that. And Lord, for me, as, as your servant up here, preaching your word, opening your word, Lord, as Peter says in his in his last epistle, for no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, as your servant carry me this morning. And Lord, let the words of my, my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O oh God, my strength and my redeemer, in whom we trust. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, jumping over to Luke chapter 19, I want you to see one thing. And I've kind of already talked about it this morning. But I want you to see that the groom has come for his bride. The groom has come for his bride. He has come to take back his people from the bondage of slavery to sin. But I want you to see how he comes back. This groom comes back in confrontation. The groom comes back in humility. And the groom comes back to transform. So if you'll look with me, starting in verse 28. We'll look at Jesus' last week. So it says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying this colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to them, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So when I was younger, I had an issue with anger. I had an issue with aggression, and I tended to instigate a lot of things. I was a young punk. If I could go back in time, I would beat myself up. I was just a young punk. But there was this story one time. Um, I was playing basketball, and uh, I lost. I hate to lose. 
I really hated to lose then. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to play again and beat my neighbor so I could rectify that loss. So I could be even with him because I hated losing. And my friend, my neighbor, a guy called my friend, didn't want to play. He was done. He's probably done because I was very upset. But he didn't want to play again. And so what I did was I said something to him that I can't repeat in church that I knew would instigate a confrontation. I knew that it would start something that I probably couldn't finish, shouldn't have even got into because this kid was about three years older than me. And again, I was just some scrawny punk kid, but I wanted to instigate so that I could start a confrontation. And this is what we have here. Jesus is starting a confrontation by riding in on a donkey into Jerusalem. It's not that he just talked back to the Pharisees and said, if they don't worship me, these stones will. But what he did was he arranged the whole ordeal. See, a lot of times, and I even, as I was reading this passage in the beginning of the week and kind of mulling over what the Holy Spirit would lead me to, to preach on, I started to look at this passage as if, oh, Jesus is just this humble guy riding in on, the, on a donkey. And, you know, he, he probably knew that there was a donkey down in the cities. He probably knew that, you know, it's close to Passover, that the city will be full of people. But the problem with that thinking is Scripture, the text. The text doesn't show us that Jesus kind of whimsically walked into the city. But he set this whole ordeal up. Jesus first sent his disciples to go and get this donkey. And what's crazy is, and if you read the accounts of all the Gospels together, over and over again, these writers take the time to show you that Jesus knew that they would find a cult. He knew exactly what the owner of that cult would say. And then he said, this is all you have to say. And then he said, this is what's going to happen. He knew everything that was going to go down just with even this cult, this donkey, because he had set it up. He was in charge. But not only that, he knew that if he sent word to go bring a donkey that he was going to ride into Jerusalem on, into the city, Bethpage and Bethany, people would roll out to follow with him. Because if you remember from last week, Bethpage and Bethany was the city in which Lazarus lived. Martha and Mary lived there. And they had seen the power of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. But not only that, he had spent plenty of time in these two cities to where they would know him, love him, and want to follow him to the ends of the earth. And he knew that if he had sent word, I'm riding into Jerusalem on this donkey, these people are going to follow he set it up. This town loved him so much, and he knew that they would roll with him to Jerusalem. The other issue that we see is for the first time in the Gospels, the first time in Jesus' ministry, Jesus lets people worship him for who he truly is. He doesn't silence them. He doesn't say, be quiet, guys. Hush, I don't need you to say these things right now. And we see this through the Gospels that Jesus, in his healing, Jesus in, is walking down the mountain from the transfiguration where he showed his glory. He would say, don't tell anybody. Don't talk about my glory. If I heal you, just run along, go home, don't tell anybody. As if nobody's going to notice that somebody who's been sick for 30 years is all of a sudden healed. Jesus is like, keep it under wraps. But now he is allowing them to worship. Now he's allowing them to worship him for who he truly is the king of kings. And he tells the Pharisees, 
yo, bro, y'all need to calm down because if they don't worship me, these rocks will. And we see later on in this, pa- later on in this passage how the Pharisees would view him for saying such a thing. Now, what does this mean for us as we, as we look at Jesus entering in Jerusalem, as he is confrontational and using this time and setting up his own funeral? What we see is that Jesus is forcing the issue. He is coming to the forefront. He's not saying, oh, okay, I'm, I'm just going to let this happen. No, he's the instigator. He's forcing the issue that he is king and he is the Messiah, and everyone who is there will know this. You see, in the Old Testament, prophets had a regular custom, which they would use over and over again when the words had no effect on the people of God. And when the people refused to listen and take in the spoken message, what they would do is they would turn to a dramatic action, to a one final plea, one final stand in which they would put the message into picture form so that anybody that saw it would not, would know what they were saying. They would have to know through this picture form of what the prophets were saying. One of my favorites as I was reading through kind of the Old Testament to look at it is Jeremiah 13, where it tells us that Jesus told Jeremiah, take a loincloth, take it down to the Euphrates, put it under the muck, the mire, all this dirt, let it, let it take on the weather, let it take on the river, let all this nastiness set into the loincloth and then pull it out a couple days later and walk around Jerusalem, walk around Israel and say, this is how God sees you. God gave this dramatic, dramatic action through Jeremiah's works to show Israel how God, for, God sees them in their sin. And they wouldn't listen to his words. They wouldn't take this example. Over and over, we see these dramatic actions being taken to get the attention of God's people. And man, we're coming up on Easter. What, great, what, what greater dramatic action that we have of God's love than Jesus dying on a cross? But Jesus' actions here in the beginning of this week are no different than what the prophets did in the Old Testament. Jesus riding into Jerusalem in this way would be an unmistakable claim, I am the Messiah. I am the one coming who's the anointed king of the Jews. This is a fulfilled prophecy from Zechariah 9 that says, the coming king of Zion, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus is saying, I am that Messiah. And this is the picture I'm showing you, the dramatic action of walking into this city to show you that the one that you are longing for, the the one that you've been waiting for All your life is now in front of you. This is Jesus' plan. And it's perfectly planned because Jesus was in charge of the whole thing. He was forcing the issue for them to see him as king. But it was also a glorious act of defiance. And I, I love this. 
Because as we looked at last week, some of the disciples told Jesus not even to go heal Lazarus because he might get killed coming so close to Jerusalem. But what Jesus did here, and even as he walked to Bethpage and Bethany to heal Lazarus, was said, I, I don't care. What are they going to do to me? And instead of shying away and slipping into Jerusalem, he came making sure he was the object of worship, that he was the focus, as if the wedding doors have now opened up and the bride, or the bride who is waiting for her groom is walking down that aisle. This is what Jesus was doing as he was walking into Jerusalem, confronting the people of that day. But he also confronts us as we look at this passage. He confronts us because he says, I am Messiah, I am King. And you need to either worship me as so or kill me. That's what Jesus says, not only here in Jerusalem, but to us today. I'm either king and you crown me as such or you kill me. There is no in-between. There is no middle ground. Reynolds Price, a professor at Duke, and his quote will actually be up on the screen so you can see this, wrote an essay on the Gospel of John that also applies to here in Luke of this idea of king, crown me as king or kill me. He says, if 2,000 years of pious handling had not dimmed our understanding of the story's demand, his gospel would still be seen as the burning outrage it continues to be. It is either a work of madness or a blinding revelation. The acts it portrays and the claims it advances from this very paragraph demands that we make a hard choice. If we take the gospel writers seriously, we must finally ask the question he thrusts so flagrantly towards us. Does he bring us a life-transforming truth or is this one gifted lunatic's tale of another lunatic wilder than he. Jesus, in coming as the king, is saying that you need to crown me as such, or I am a crazy lunatic and you need to kill me. That is what he's saying, and that is what he's saying to us now as believers in Christ. All of our decisions, all of our life choices are based around, am I king or am I not? Because you can't live in the middle ground. And Jesus gives a strong warning to those who live in the middle ground in Revelation 3. He says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write this, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself in shame, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and ointment to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be jealous, zealous and repent. I promise I've read these verses before. <laughs> Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I, was also, as I have also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Christ Christ coming as king. Christ coming and forcing the issue of the Messiah in our lives makes us choose and respond every single day, moment by moment. Is he king of our lives or is he not? Because there is no in between. And we can't live there. I plead with you, if you are living there, that you move from one side to the other. And I pray that you would move to crowning him as king. But not only does he come as a groom in confrontation, the groom comes with humility. He comes with humility and he comes with sorrow. As Isaiah would say, he's a, he is a man of sorrow. Go with me to verse 41 and we'll see his, his humbleness and his sorrow for his people. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation." Now, I understand it sounds a little contradictory to say that this groom who comes in confrontation also comes in humility, but he does. Jesus' life is that. Tim Keller on this very idea says that Jesus is always extremely humble. Always extremely humble, but never modest. He's never modest because he says, I am king and you need to worship me as such. But here he comes in humility. He comes in humility and sorrow. And he comes in three ways that we see this from this passage. He comes in humility on how he rides into Jerusalem on the donkey. And he comes in sorrow because he is weeping over his city and his people who he loves. Now at this point in Jesus's ministry, you kind of have to look at this and say, if Jesus set this whole thing up, if Jesus knew and he was forcing the issue, why would he ride in on a donkey? Why, would, why wouldn't he ride in on a horse? If he's king, why wouldn't he ride on a horse showing that he is king? Because to come, to come to war, to come into battle on a donkey would get you slaughtered. And if you think about that, that's, that's exactly how Jesus set that up. He, he came on a donkey in order to be slaughtered. But the thing is, a king doesn't come in on a donkey especially for war, but he comes in on a horse. You know who comes in on a donkey? Servants come in on a donkey. And here's the gospel message that we see from Christ coming in on that, on that donkey. Sin is servants putting themselves in the place of the king. Therefore, salvation was the king putting himself in the place of a servant. And that's what Christ does for us. That's what he shows us as he comes in on this donkey, humble, not ready for war, but as a king of peace. Because to come in on a horse would mean that this is going to be a battle. And to be honest with you, that's probably what most people thought as he was riding into this city. That the king has finally come. He's allowing us to worship him. We know his power. We know that he can heal. We're going to walk into battle and we're going to destroy Rome. And Jesus is going to reign physically here. I mean, can you imagine what disciples might have been thinking seeing that Jesus could heal 
and walking into battle knowing that nobody's going to die because Jesus can heal you as you got stabbed or anything like that? I mean, that'd be, that'd be awesome walking into a battle like that. But this is what they thought, that Jesus is finally coming to rule and reign and Rome was about to get dropped. But that's not what Jesus had in mind. That's not Jesus' plan. The donkey in this time was not a lowly beast like we see nowadays. But the donkey at that time was a noble beast, a noble one. And when kings rode in on these donkeys, they were meant to show they were coming in peace. That's the type of kingdom Jesus wanted to establish first. We see that in verse 38. The king has come in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus is coming to establish peace first. He's not coming to conquer as a military ruler. And that's important for us to see, and I'm going to get back to that in a little bit. So take note of that. But Jesus comes in humility as a king of peace. The next way, the next way we see Jesus coming into this city is with sorrow. He comes in with sorrow, weeping for his city and weeping for his people. And what's interesting, you know, you, you think about this story, you think about Jesus walking down the Mount of Olives on this donkey and he starts to weep. The, the English translation doesn't actually put it in a correct form because weeping kind of looks like, oh man, maybe some tears have rolled down. Maybe he's got a few tears that he just needs to wipe off and nobody really notices that he's crying. But the Greek shows us that Jesus was wailing, wailing for his people as if his soul was in agony. That the pain that he saw for his city and the future that he saw for Jerusalem led him to cry as if he had nothing left when he got done. Now picture that scene of Jesus walking down. People are worshiping him and he's wailing, snots flying everywhere. He's, he is crying and his soul is being bared in front of these people. This is the love that Jesus had for his people and the sorrow that he saw because he saw what was about to happen to them. Now we see in this last week, Jesus entering into, entering into the city weeping and wailing. And we saw that last week as Jesus did the same thing when he wept for Lazarus, even though, even though he knew he was gonna raise him from the dead. But the difference here. Jesus still sees what's about to happen, but nobody's getting raised from the dead. People were actually going to be destroyed. And Jesus saw that coming up, and he wept for his people. He's looking at Jerusalem, knowing what will happen in the next coming decades. He knew that their desire for a political Messiah would destroy them. And if you think about that, we're not far off when it comes to longing for a political Messiah, am I right? I'm just going to let that one sit there because that's a whole sermon in itself. But listen to what Josephus has to say about the destruction of what's coming to Jerusalem and what Jesus foresees happening to his people. Josephus is actually a Roman Jewish scholar who wrote on the Jewish history. And he gives us, he gives us this glimpse of what happens in 70 AD when the Romans destroy the city. He says, all hope of escaping was now cut off from the Jews, together with their liberty of going out of the city. They, they, then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families. The upper rooms of women and infants that were dying by famine and the lanes of the city were full of dead bodies of the aged. 
the children also, and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with the famine and fell down dead. They fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized them. For a time, the dead were buried, but afterwards, when they could not do that, they had them cast over the wall into the valleys beneath. And when Titus, on going his rounds along these valleys, saw them full of dead bodies and the thick putrefaction running about them, he gave a groan. And spreading out his hands to heave, called to God, saying, This was not my doing. Spurgeon, on this very passage and what was happening in, in 70 AD, would say, that there is nothing more horrific than what happened to Jerusalem in 70 AD. But there's nothing even more horrific compared to the destruction of a soul. And so he's trying to, to get us to see Jesus is weeping for his people, not just because the city was about to be destroyed, but because they didn't see the Messiah in front of them. They did not see the coming king, the promised one that they had been waiting for and longing for, that the Old Testaments and the prophets preached about, they did not see that he is actually in front of them. And so he wept. But he also wept specifically for his people that they, they didn't see that their Savior had come, that the joy and the hope and the life that would free them from the slavery of sin was there. Now, here's what I want us to take notice of when it comes to Jesus weeping. Put yourselves in Jesus' shoes as hard as that may be right now, but imagine walking into your own city, seeing your own people and knowing they are about to be destroyed. Imagine knowing what the city once was and where they are now. That they are infected with sin, that they are indifferent to the Lord's commands, and the temple in which they worshiped and met God was now being polluted with corruption. And as Jesus walks down the Mount of Olives, he sees the terrible judgments that were coming upon them. And he wept, knowing that his people were missing out, missing out on the Messiah, missing out on the one they longed for. This is what Jesus sees in front of him. Now, I, I have a story about a, a pastor who took a job in a new church in a new city. And I promise this isn't a story about me, Dwayne, or Jeremy. But this pastor took a, a, a job in a new church in a new city. And one day he was in the church. He was looking out over the people, looking out over the city, praying for them. And he began to weep. He began to weep because he saw the destruction that Sid ha sin had on the city, had on the people. He began to weep because he knew that sin and darkness had a hold on these people. And as he was crying, a member of the church came up to him and said, Pastor, don't worry. After you've been here for a while, you'll get used to it. So my question to you, my question to myself this week, over and over as it ran over, as I was looking over this passage, I was looking over Jesus weeping, is have we gotten used to it? Have we gotten used to the sin around us? Have we gotten used to the domain of darkness that has taken a hold of the people around us that we no longer cry for those people? That we no longer have a heart that is broken for the people around us? 
that we no longer see and listen to gospel opportunities to be able to share the hope that we have because we have gotten used to it. How often do we find ourselves weeping, crying for the people around us, knowing this simple truth, if they don't know Christ, they are going to hell and they will spend eternity away from the Lord. Does that bring us to tears? Or have we gotten used to it? I will say this phrase over and over again, probably more to preach to myself. The depth and value of what you bring in your heart to other people will depend on what you do in solitude. Are your prayers leading you to weep and cry out for the people around you? Or have you gotten used to it? And that's a tough question to ask. That is a heart check question to ask. Because if we're honest with ourselves, more often than not, we've probably gotten used to the world around us. We've probably watered down the truth that they will spend eternity away from the Lord because we're just used to it. And so my prayer is that we would hear, we would hear this message. We would see Jesus' example of weeping for his people and we would ask God to break our hearts for those around us. Now the groom came in confrontation. The groom came in humility and with sorrow, but the groom also came to transform. And so if you'll go with me to verse 45, we'll see the transformation that Jesus brings. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. The Pharisees sought to destroy him. So we get our answer of Jesus talking back to them. They, they didn't like that. But after Jesus walks down into the city and, and Luke doesn't give us a full picture, but the other gospel writers would, that Jesus took time. He walked into the temple, he took time and waited and then walked into the temple to cleanse it of the money changers, to cleanse it of the people exhorting, extorting the poor. Because what was happening in the temple, which ultimately was supposed to be a place of worship, where the people of God would go and worship him, the Gentiles who were God-fearing would be able to worship him, had now become a for-profit venue had now become a place where people were capitalizing on the poor and extorting those who didn't have enough. We find that there were money changers who were charging people more than they should to exchange money. We find that people were charging 75% more than what a dove would cost outside of the temple so that they could make a buck. It's, it's, it's astounding to see what they were doing inside of God's house. So Jesus comes with righteous anger and he sees this and he goes in and he lights the place up. He cleanses the temple. He kicks the money changers out. He kicks the people selling these goods out because they were, they were destroying the place of worship. They were not allowing people to be able to worship freely. And he still does this today. Now granted, there, there isn't a temple that we go to. 
this, this would not be considered a temple that we go to. There isn't a place where we worship every Sunday that we have a high priest that would sacrifice for us. Because in the time that Jesus is in, that, that's what they did. They would go to the temple because that's where God met his people. That's where his glory dwelt. And that's where the priest would intercede on behalf of their people. But in that temple, there was a veil. There was a veil between God's people and the Holy of Holies. This veil represented the separation between God's glory and man's sin. And so often, the priests would go in between this veil to sacrifice for the people of Israel. And it was a very serious place, so serious that as the high priest would go in, if there was any sin upon him that he had not repented for, God would light him up right there. He would fall dead. And the story goes that if a high priest did fall dead, he had a rope around his ankle because people were f afraid to go into the Holy of Holies because of how serious God was against sin. So they'd pull him out in order to save their life. But on the day that Jesus died, the day in which Jesus said, it is finished, the gospel writers would tell us that that veil was torn. That separation between God and man was torn down because Jesus entered into that space. Jesus became our mediator. Jesus became our high priest, interceding on our behalf. And the beauty of that is that now, when we accept Christ, when, when, when God saves us as believers, we now have that glory dwelling within us. The Holy Spirit comes within us and we are now considered God's temple. And God's promise to cleanse that temple comes in the form of sanctification. It comes in the form that God is going to make us into the image of Christ. Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is a part of sanctification. Romans 8, 28 and 29 tell us that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his son. Philippians 1, 6 tells us that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion on the day of the Lord. This is what God's promise is to us to transform our lives because our lives are the temple today. We show God's glory in our life, how we act and live and show the hope of the world. That is our spiritual worship because we no longer have to go to a temple. We no longer have to have a high priest intercede for us because Christ has done that and it is finished. And he works in us with the same veracity that he did in that temple. He is determined to make us into the image of Christ and to cleanse us to bring glory to his name. Now I wanted to close with this and I want to go back to the topic of why Jesus couldn't come as a military ruler first. And, and, and hear this, he will come back as a ruler one day. He will come back on a, on a, on a white horse. He will come back, tatted up, so you guys get ready for that. 
His robe's going to be dipped in blood, and he is going to be ready to finally take back his people and restore all things. I mean, I hope I have some popcorn for this battle because it's going to be glorious. But what he's saying to Israel in this time, coming in on the donkey, coming in as a humble servant is this. If I liberate you now from Rome, what are you going to do about your sin? What are you going to do about your guilt, about your emptiness, about your spiritual nakedness that you are desperately, desperately trying to prove yourself? What are you going to do about the fact of your real slavery to sin and the identity crisis within it? Because you have a slavery that goes far deeper than Rome. And I can't come back as a military ruler because I have to come back as a humble servant first to take on the wrath of God in order for you to be freed from that sin, free from that guilt, free from that shame. And he says the same thing to us. But this side of the cross, he says, I have come. I have come and I have freed you from this in my life, my death, my resurrection. When you are in me, your identity is mine. And this Palm Sunday, we see that the groom has come. He's humbly submitted himself to death on the cross to purchase back his bride and to free us from that bondage of sin. And one day he will come back as a military ruler to free us once and for all and restore all things. And so as we go about this week, as we go about thinking and worshiping and walking towards Easter, let us not look past Palm Sunday. That The groom is here. The doors have opened up. The music has changed and Christ is walking down that aisle to his death in order to purchase his bride, in order to free her from the bondage of sin and slavery and to give her a new identity, a new creation. Let's pray. Lord, we, we come to you humbly, thanking you for this passage of scripture that shows us the groom has come for his bride. That he has, on this side of the cross, liberated us from our guilt, our shame, our emptiness, our identity, and our need to prove ourselves. He's freed us from the slavery to sin. And we can rest in that, Lord. We can worship and praise you for that because you are good and you have promised that in, in this salvation you will make us more into the image of Christ. You will fill us with the longings of our hearts. And Lord, you will, you will stir our affections so that we grow more and more in love with you. So Lord, as we take this time to just reflect on your truths, to, re to reflect on your gospel, Lord. I pray that you would stir our hearts. Lord, maybe it's that we, maybe it's that we need our hearts broken for the people around us. Lord, maybe we have gotten used to the sin and darkness around us 
Lord, maybe it's that we need to recognize and see you and crown you as king of our lives and stop living in the middle. Lord, whatever it may be, Lord, may you challenge us, may you work in our hearts as we reflect in this time. And pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Guys, we're gonna take some time to just reflect on the truths of the gospel, the message that... Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at